when somebody says, oh, I didn't have it as bad as you, screw that. Because then you're telling somebody who doesn't maybe get hit as hard as you that they have no right to their journey, that they have no right to feel bad. So, so you never judge somebody else's pain. Um, so there is no worse off. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, aren't very good at it. One of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations with attempt survivors and hopefully better conversation. We are talking about suicide. This may not be a good fit for everyone. Please take that into account before you listen. I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Now, if you're a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I'd love to talk. You can email us at hello at suicidenoted.com. If you like this podcast, please keep doing what you're doing. Listen, And you can let people know about it. If you rate it and review it, this also helps get the word out there. People in places like Italy and South Africa and the UK and Germany have heard these stories by these survivors because they matter. I want more people in more places to hear them, and I really appreciate your support. Today I am talking with C. C lives in Nebraska. And he is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, C, how are you? I'm okay. Where are you, by the way? You in the Midwest somewhere, right? <laughs> I'm in Nebraska. Uh, there's a herd of buffalo outside. I'd show it to you, but you wouldn't be able to see it anyway. Right. There's social distancing. Sure. Understand. Uh-huh. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you for doing this. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, my pleasure. I always ask people this the great majority of the people who have tried to take their lives are not talking about it publicly. I can say that with absolute certainty. How did you come to that where you were okay talking about it? How did that happen? I guess I got to the point where I had absolutely nothing left to lose. Mm -hmm. And and then I realized that um, because I had nothing left to lose, it didn't matter what I talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I realized that talking about it made people feel a little less quote unquote crazy. And I know crazy is, a derogatory term, but I mean, for lack of a better, and then folks started to tell me, thank you or something similar. And so I, I did it again. And the more people told me, don't do that. That's risky. The more I did it because I don't like people telling me what to do. So where were you doing that? Where you started to talk about it? Would that be online or offline spaces? Uh, well, <laughs> online didn't exist when I started. So okay. offline, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And people um, for the, and people were receptive or it just varied? Receptive. Um, I'm kind of a freak of nature where people come up to me in grocery stores or hotel hallways and tell me their life story. Um, okay. Or I'll walk in to deliver something off like marketplace or free cycle or whatever. And they'll talk to me for two hours and that sort of thing. So, and it's always been like that. So hmm. if they, they seem a little sad, they'll, they'll just 
vomit out their troubles and and I'll share my story and then we'll both walk away feeling a little better. And that's that's been that way since I was 17, 18 years old. What is that called? Is there a name for that? A deep sense of empathy and a little bit of sadism, I guess. <laughs> that's an interesting combo, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Share with me in as much as you're comfortable about your uh, attempt or attempts, what they were like, however you want to sort of frame it. It's your story. My first attempt was when I was nine and I didn't even really know that I was doing it then. Um, It was probably an accidental attempt. My first memories were when I was about nine, 10 months old and they were memories of being abused by my father, um, sexually abused. And that was that was the longest um, experience of my life. Um, it didn't stop. The last attempt was when I was 19 of, of him being um, inappropriate. And when I was nine, um, I tried to gut myself of the organs they preferred, if you will. And um, it caused a lot of bleeding and um, mm. ended up in the hospital. But because that was a willing a willing thing that I did um, purposely to try and, and end the, the icky, you know, I, I count that as an as an attempt because if it didn't work, I just wanted to cease to exist anyway. And it didn't work. Um, I ended up in the hospital and everything was stitched up, blood was replaced, and I was back out there again. But I consider that my first attempt. My second attempt was about a year later. Um, I didn't know that you couldn't die on Daytrill, but my parents didn't even know I was gone. I was in my room sick and tired and asleep, passed out. I don't know, but I was, I was in a pile of puke on my grandmother's quilt for like a day and a half and they didn't notice. Around 13, I was in a play, Arsenic and Old Lace. And um, mm-hmm. I was just sitting after rehearsal hours and stuff. And I was fondling the, the starting gun. Well, it was a gun, but it was a starting gun in the play. And um, just as I was like going to squeeze the trigger, um, a friend took it away and it was just like a little starting cap powder burn you know on the hannah stuff but mm-hmm. it could have done some damage and these were all non-thought-out juvenile attempts yeah. you know impulsive that sort of thing but it was just so nasty that i just impulsively just wanted to escape um mm-hmm. nothing was really well thought out until i was about almost 16 i was incredibly uh creative manipulative um convincing and i i uh, ran away from home for about a week and a half convinced my mother who didn't live with us at that time my mother's landlord that i was supposed to be there but she my mom who was a trucker um, was on a layover so i got access to her apartment and and hid there for about a week and when i was done hiding there i went to my grandparents house and my my grandfather um who was a a co-participant in the sex abuse um, it was better at his house, though, because he didn't hit or call names. Just my, my father did all three of those things. Mm. So I was planning to um, do myself in. Um, so I was on the front porch and I was I didn't care anymore. So I was just I was crying. And my across the street neighbor, his name is Jay Halla. I, I grew up with him and he came over and wanted to know what was wrong. And since it didn't matter anymore, I told him everything. And uh, he was the first person that ever believed me. Mm. Um, and he said, uh, sit there and, and just be still. And he went into the garage where my grandfather was. And he came back about 20 minutes later. And he said, you don't have to worry anymore. And he didn't say it was going to be okay. But he said it was done. And my grandfather never touched me again. The next day, uh, 
Jay brought me um, a red pen and a notebook and said, you know, instead of cutting yourself, write instead. It's the same color red. And, um, and I did. Dude, I want to uh, meet Jay. <laughs> yeah, he sounds like a cool dude. He was. He was. Jay Hala. Yeah. How yeah. old was he when he gave you that uh, uh, suggestion to? 24, because he's nine years older than I am. Yeah, he was my closest friend in, in age, closest in age friend, yeah, where I grew up at. Wow, um, so you had a lot of friends that were much older? Yeah, there were 12, 12 kids. Um, well, 13 if you counted the snotty girl up the street, but we didn't really count her because she was a snotty girl up the street. Right. Um, but there were 12 kids at the time. I mean, it was a very small town, so. Yeah. Yeah, and so growing up in a small town when stuff like that's happening, the stuff that you dealt with, I would imagine either way it's brutal and awful, but like even maybe harder in some ways. Yeah. Um, later, my, my cousin, uh, who was also perpetrated by my grandfather and my father, uh, he wrote me a letter. And after I received that letter, we did some, some research and for people that would talk to us, some retroactive apologies, even though it wasn't our fault. And we figured out that probably three generations of kids were molested by by our family that's a that's a legacy that's kind of sad you know sad and hurtful and hard to deal with but but it stopped i mean we didn't go any further yeah and so you tried several times right so you said you were nine yeah then a couple several during your teenage years when was the last one you know there was lots of thinking about it but the last real attempt was and I, I'm not even sure if it counts, but when I was in my um, 2015, so what was I, 35? Mm-hmm. Was I 35 then? Oh, gosh, no. 40, 45. Oh, you look good. You look young. God, I'm old. Yeah, I'm 50. I wanted to cut off um, my hands with, with something. So my partner at the time um, just took away all the sharp things. It was on July 4th, my, my um, 2013. There you go. Yeah. My father isn't my father, my, my biological father is my father of record. And um, the last time that he attempted something was when I was 19 on the 4th of July because he was drunk off of his ass and thought that I was my mother and uh, tried something in the middle of the day in the middle of a party. And the 4th of July has never been happy, <laughs> really. Mm. And uh, so I had a dream and that put me in a bad place and I woke up and it was just, it was, it was hard. But you know, if I thought of it, I've been in in bad places. I have I have a vial of pills in case I, I ever need them, but now it's more of a quality of life thing because I have some pretty serious illnesses. But I have never been tempted to go there. Never. I I, I have a therapist, I have a an ESA dog. And through childhood and through my young adult years, it was an almost daily, you know, you wake up every single day and say, you know, what am I gonna do today to keep myself living? Mm. And I go through periods of depression now where that happens, but not very often. So when you're a kid or a teenager, it sounds like like hardcore ideation. I don't know the technical word for it. Yeah, that's 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 the word. Yeah, yeah. suicidal ideation. That's pretty extreme. Yeah. That's hard. Depression and and probably dysthymia, but uh, uh-huh. super deep depression. It, yeah, it was hard. Um, I like, screwed up a good portion of my life. Yeah. Sometimes I'll ask these questions and they're, oh, I almost feel like they're either a little unfair or unanswerable, but I'll still ask them because I never know. Like, how did you stay alive? 
I had a lot of people that cared for me um, in spite of my protests. I was, I, I was an addict and a drunk from the age of 11 to about 22. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember stealing my, my dad's uh, red hearts and white crosses and taking them down to the truck stop about six blocks away. Um, Arnold's truck stop in Fremont, Nebraska and selling them to truckers. And I have no idea why those truckers bought for me because right. <laughs> it would be still in jail probably. But I started selling drugs and then, you know, because a good dealer doesn't take his own product, I, I wasn't, wasn't, you know, high then, but just a couple of years later, I started getting high and started drinking and I didn't realize it until almost in my twenties, but my, my dad, who was a law enforcement officer would bring booze to my house. Because mm. if the kids were drunk, he could groom them easier. I didn't realize that's what he was doing, but my house was the party house. But when I got older and uh, it, it just got so bad, I mean, I was, I was hooking sometimes. I didn't care who I was sleeping with. I was so promiscuous and all those things, they fall in line with all the classical symptoms and all that crap. But one day I just called a friend. I was that bad. Mm. And I don't know what it was like. She never told me and she's passed away. So I'm never going to know, but, um, I detoxed to her house for about two weeks. And then I call myself a skeptical agnostic, enjoying the mythology of Christ right now, mythology, not mythology. But, uh, I just, I feel like something just, you know, walked in and, and set me straight. I still don't know why I'm so well adjusted. And that said, I've got a lot of stuff up, but I just feel like I, was supposed to be here to do something. Um, it sounds like it. Yeah. And I don't know if it's done. Maybe there's more to do. Um, I have a goddaughter now who's hurting pretty badly and she, she feels better when she's with me. So maybe that's it. Or maybe it's to tell the nurse that's attending to my death that she's doing a good job. Who knows? But maybe she's not born yet. Who knows? But, but the people that cared about me, even though I told them they're wasting their time and I'm not worth it, kept me going yeah i don't know who's listening to this i do know sometimes i i know that we have more listeners than we had yesterday which is great <laughs> growing slowly but i i share that because presumably people that are going to find it however they find it some will probably be in bad shape and maybe there are other people that are sort of in the position of helping or caring for or supporting and it sounds like you had people in your life who cared and and presumably tell me if i'm wrong some who responded not so nicely yeah. after yeah. you tried. And I always ask, I'm always wondering, what does that look and feel like when it's, hey, that's helpful? And what does it look like or feel like when it's, or sound like when it's, whether you realize it or not, you're not helping, you're making this worse by your words or actions. So I guess it's a two-part question, if that makes sense. You know, ironically, they both, they both feel pretty crappy. Um, mm. Because when somebody is helping you, um, you really don't know you're being helped until probably down the line. And while you're being helped, um, often you have such a low self-worth or low self-esteem. Um, you feel guilty because you're being helped. And you spend a lot of time trying to refuse the gift of help, the gift of mm-hmm. caring, um, and trying to convince the individual that their, their time is better spent on somebody else. And you feel guilty and not worthy. Um, and they have to try really hard to convince you that that their attention um, that you're worthy of it, um, and that you're you're worth breath, you know. Mm-hmm. And it takes it takes a long time for them sometimes to get through to you. Um, and in the meantime, 
if you're really good at convincing them, sometimes they just get fed up and they leave. So it takes a really strong sense of uh, stick to and good patience and a good heart to keep on going. And that's the people that are brave enough to bring suicide up. So many people are scared to say that word. Yeah. You know? And then the ones that just go on through their lives being afraid, um, they're the ones you're fine with because they're either they're they're the neutral people, um, the folks that are that are neuter that you don't even know about, you know. And they're the ones that you can be with uh, the most comfortably. And the ones that blow you off say, you know, oh, I'll help with anything. And then they help you like three times, and then they're gone. Um, those just reinforce the fact that you think you're nothing. So unfortunately, they're pretty much in the same category. It's not until you realize that perhaps you're worth a little bit that the ones that are helping you stand out to be in the better crowd. That takes a bit of work. Yeah. Why do you think people are so scared to bring up that word, suicide? Because death has a lot of power. And when you die of natural causes or because of disease, it's not, it's something that you can't help. You know, yeah. I mean, maybe if you took a little more chemo or maybe if, you know, uncle, uncle Johnny could have gotten there just in time to, you know, maybe they, they would have waited for that or something, but, but suicide is something that a person can in theory control. And maybe if they bring it up, then they're going to push that person who can control their lives to it, you know, and they don't want to be responsible for that. But, people don't have that much power. They just don't realize that. I mean, talking about suicide isn't going to drive somebody over the edge. Hearing that word isn't going to make somebody do it. Um, if anything, it'll give them permission to unburden themselves and, and get help. Pop the cork a little bit and let some of that nasty effervescence go. Maybe feel a little less alone. Yeah, absolutely. Because if suicide's scary to them, to the people that are afraid to say the word, imagine how it feels to the people that are considering it. Yeah. They think if they say it, then they're going to cause it, and they're not. I agree with you. I've had people say, push back a little bit, maybe with super young people. You know, maybe they're like a 12-year-old and you plant an idea. But uh, I can't guarantee it. But I think, I don't. No. I don't think so. Especially now, and, and I, I, I don't know. I really, I'll, I'll never know. I try to do things responsibly, ethically. Look, I mean, I. I ask people these sort of questions that aren't typically asked. I don't think, for example, people sharing with me how they tried. I don't think that's giving anyone any ideas. We don't go over blueprints here. No. But, but no. like you, you tell me that you took pills or you, you, you jumped off a bridge. Like that's, that's part of the story and it's okay. Yeah. And I think it's an important yeah. part sometimes to not leave out because this happened. Yeah. Instructions are, are on the internet. And if you were concerned about your kid having instructions, then yeah. you wouldn't put them on the computer. Right. Um, and having been a 12 year old that had already attempted, I would have welcomed adult intervention or adult conversation that was healthy. Hearing adults having conversations would probably stop a lot of this stuff. I want your thoughts on this. I, I don't think most adults, let's assume we're talking about ones that are well-intentioned. The ones that aren't, I think it's a different conversation. I don't think they actually know how to have those conversations. I don't know if I'm right there. I get the sense that they don't know what to say. It, it doesn't have to be at a suicidal moment, though. I mean, yeah. as soon as your kids are come out of the body, discuss what the body parts are called. Discuss that everybody's skin is beautiful. Discuss that your life is important. You know, parents don't even touch on those topics. Not, not normally. 
I don't even know when my parents ever said your life is worth living, you know, and if you feel sad, come and talk to me. Nobody ever said that to me. I say that to the kiddos in my life all the time, but I didn't hear it from somebody as a role model. Yeah. You know, somebody had said to me, your life is important. And if you feel sad, come and talk to me. I made a difference. So it doesn't have to be a pseudophile moment. It just should be all the time. You know, you're valuable and come talk to me when you feel sad. That's all it has to start with. Great point. Yeah, it's not necessarily, we're in a crisis. What do we do or say, or how do we handle it? It's every day. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I mean, my parents cared about me. My friend's parents cared about them. And I don't think those, that was conversations we had much, if at all. No. We learn a lot of stuff formally and informally, which is arguably what our culture thinks is important, right? Yeah. Please and thank you. Don't cross the street. Look both ways. Basic math. Long list. We don't learn this shit. Why? <laughs> it's a pendulum swing. I mean, hundred couple of hundred years ago or so, families lived in the same house and they all were nurturing and took care of each other. And mm. then that got to be too stuffy. And then we all had more bigger boundaries that were thicker. And then we all stopped talking to each other and separated. And then now, you know, that's getting a little more crunchy granola touchy feely. And it's just a pendulum swing. I just hope that pendulum can be broken, you know, and maybe stay a little more touchy feely. Yeah. I haven't heard anybody say it like that. I like that. A, a, a pendulum. Yeah. And that, and that maybe there were times that we were better at it because it was, like you said, right? We're around each other and we're probably 200 years ago in a more rural area. I imagine you're just collaborating more. You have to. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, like now with this, this uh, COVID-19 thing, families are, are closer. They're spending time together. They're playing games together. Um, neighbors know their names are having cul-de-sac dance parties, you know, that wouldn't have happened. I mean, that's one of the benefits of being forced to be together. Yeah. I mean, there's also a small percentage that have murdered each other, but other than them. (laughs) Well, yeah, but you know, no, I think on the whole, you're right. It makes sense that let's do this. I want to bust or dispel some myths that you and others might have or others have around suicide, ideation, attempt survivors, the whole shebang. Like what are a few that stand out to you that it's like, nah, that's bullshit. (laughs) That you can tell if somebody is suicidal. Mm. Um, A lot of us are really good at faking it. For instance, at the, uh, the major medical center that I, that's here, here in my city, you can probably tell, you know what the name of it is. It doesn't matter, but they, most big hospitals or hospitals in general say, are you feeling suicidal? Do you have any depression and that sort of thing? And and nurses can get into my record and know um, when my last attempt was and that I am being treated for depression and that, but I will always say no, because um, if you say yes, you are treated in such a manner where it's stupid because um, I went to a, I went to have a seizure study done because I have a seizure disorder. And I said, well, sure, I feel a little sad because I'm in here for a seizure disorder. It makes sense to me. So they, um, they gave me clamshells for my dinner and plastic uh, dinnerware. Well, yeah. having worked with juvenile offenders, I know that in a heartbeat, you can break off a plastic knife and make a shank sharper than anything. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to concuss myself with my plastic hospital tray. I mean, that's just not going to be easy to do. So why do the clamshells make everything mushy and nasty? Plus, it, it makes people remind themselves of how depressed they are. And when I'm in a, a hospital room with a neck of wires right around here, 
you know, and I have no sitter in the room to guard me from my suicidal ideations that are so bad that I have clamshells and plastic silverware. Right. And then I counted up everything in the room that I could have harmed myself with. It was like 41 items in the room that I could have hurt myself with, but I'm so bad that I get clamshells for dinner. <laughs> It, it I'm not no laughing sense. at you. You know that, right? No, I'm just laughing yeah, at the it. absurdity of uh, the way yeah. a lot of institutions or whatever, hospitals, call them whatever yeah. you want. Like the way they deal with sort of, I think it's a risk averse model, risk right. aversion. And, right. But sometimes even that, like you're saying the examples, it's like, who's running the show here? Wait, what? It, yeah. It needs to be more, th- it would be more kind if they had a human in there instead of some styrofoam and then not even thorough. Um, but, but people, because of that, they hide it really well. Yeah, you don't want to be treated inconsistently unfairly. I mean, I'm in, I'm intelligent. I'm gregarious. I I I hang out with community and stuff. And I know that was full of crap. Yeah, it was just checking off a box and doing something small so they could avoid liability. Right, you nailed it. Right. Yeah, and I I get that, but it wasn't thorough. I could have hurt myself in just a moment. So if you're gonna do it, do it all the way. And if you're not gonna do it, then then don't. Um, but I like now I fake it. I say no every time because I know what's coming. Humans are smart. Yeah. So, so you're not going to know a lot of the times if somebody is suicidal, we will hide it because we don't want to go through the crap. Um, and yeah. we know that we're feeling bad today, but tomorrow is probably going to be all right. So why tell you, why bother telling anybody? Cause you're not going to make a difference. And all I'm going to get is clamshell dishes. <laughs> I have gotten to be such a, I wish I were better about this. I'm such a jerk about it now that when anybody asks a question, primary care, it doesn't matter that type of line of questioning. I'm such a, I'm like, stop. I, I, and it's unfair because I know they're just doing their job and yeah. you know, if their boss is going to give them shit, if they don't do the same, pay, stop, you know, this is silly. Just check whatever you need to check. But I, I have, I can't not do that. And I can't just be like, no, I'm fine. There's a little bit of a fuck you in me. Mm-hmm. Like, come on, man. You know? Yeah. I'm well known on the medical campus because I, I sat on some boards and, and helped design their, their charting system. And, and I tell them I'm not going to answer those honestly. So how would you like me to answer them? And they know me by now. They just kind of laugh and they, they, you know, we go through it and I don't answer them honestly. Um, but I'm upfront about the fact that I'm going to lie. So, yeah. So that's, that's one of the myths is that we, we don't tell that you can't tell. Um, you can't tell if somebody's suicidal. Not always, no. It doesn't, and and then we also don't cry wolf. I what mean, mean, never assume we're crying wolf. I mean, people might say all the time, I, you know, I'm going to commit suicide tomorrow, and they don't, mm-hmm. and they repeat that tomorrow for two weeks of tomorrows. But maybe on that second week and second day, that tomorrow comes true. Mm-hmm. So even though um, that person repeats their their declaration over and over and over again know that something is going on either there's depression or a need for attention um or they haven't developed the guts quote unquote to do it but they're going to do it sometime so so don't take it don't take it for granted that they're just playing with you people i've heard often people say that oh if they're saying it a lot they don't mean it that's not true sometimes they just don't mean it then sometimes that the taste of that word in their mouth doesn't feel right that day and they'll do it 14 days from now after trying that taste out over and over and over again what about so those two myths the first one that you can't always tell right uh-huh and the second one about i think you're essentially saying believe what someone's saying yeah what was that like for you 
and you're and I'm going we're going way back because you first tried when you were nine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting. I had a conversation with someone yesterday and they were eight. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? Like eight, nine years old. It's uh, like, wow. And but so and you had that teenagers and then you you in 2013 had what you're calling as a suicide attempt, right? With your hands. So you've been, you've been in this game for years. Yeah. Would we be able to tell if you were suicidal? Would we need to ask? What do we need to do if you're, you know, not you per se, but I want you to use you as the example of like, are you letting people know or is it something that we need sometimes. to? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I am. I will never tell her. And it's very unlikely that she'll find this until she's older, but my, my goddaughter keeps me going. Um, yeah. She, for a long time, she was the only person that I loved. I didn't know that I could love. I thought I was broken, um, but I knew that I loved her. And the thought of breaking her heart broke mine. Mm. So I, I stayed alive for her. It didn't matter how bad I was hurting. I stayed alive for her because the thought of her hurting is bad. Cause I couldn't do it. Yeah. And I found a very good therapist finally for the first time um, ever. And I've just started my, learning my lessons a couple years ago. I hope that it doesn't take people this long to do it. I hope they start sooner. Um, but uh, she has really good enunciation and she says bullshit really well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I kept trying. I just kept trying them on like pairs of shoes and they just didn't fit well. I mean, they looked good and they said the right things, but we ended up becoming friends and chatting more often than not. And um, she's, uh, she's friendly. Um, and I would even call her a good neighbor if I lived in the same town that she did. Yeah. Um, but she calls bullshit all the time and she's right. She knows when to, and she's got a way of poking thorns in my side to the point where pus leaks out that I didn't even know was there because in order to, to heal from crap, you have to let the, the, the wounds bleed, you know, and get all that infection out. And, um, that's a metaphor, right. but it's also the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you, you know, you could go even further with it. That's how you have a healthy scar, right? But if not, mm-hmm. it's a problem. I am really curious about that. So it took you a while to find a therapist that you had that kind of connection with. So, yeah, what, like, it, like what's the difference? Because I'm sure a lot of people are, including me, not that therapist. He's okay, but nah, 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 nah. Fuck it. I don't <laughs> want to do this anymore, right? Like, it, yeah. Why am I doing this? How many times am I going to start over again? But you found yeah, one. I did. It's awesome. I think a lot of my time has been spelt, been spelt, hmm, <laughs> has been spent um, yeah. just being too busy helping people instead of myself. Um, because folks get told a lot if you feel really bad, help somebody that's worse off than you. Um, yeah. I don't judge worse off because I learned a long time ago if. When somebody says, oh, I didn't have it as bad as you, screw that. Because then you're telling somebody who doesn't, who doesn't maybe get hit as hard as you that they have no right to their journey, that they have no right to feel bad. So, yeah. so you never judge somebody else's pain. Um, so there is no worse off. But I spent a lot of time helping folks and making my mind busy with that. So I never considered my own problems until um, my world blew up about two years ago. And then I didn't have anything to consider because I didn't have anything. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that's when I, I found that therapist and it just all meshed, but um, things, things have to be in the right place at the right time to do that. Yeah. How's the lockdown been for you? <laughs> um, on one hand, it, it hasn't really changed that much because I, I really don't, uh, 
like I said, my world blew up two years ago. So um, I lost a good, good number of my physical friends. I have online friends and stuff, but I also, so it hasn't changed much, but it also hasn't changed much because I was given a case of necrotizing fasciitis for my birthday in February. And um, what is that? The flesh eating disease. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's on the, what's on the back of my neck and it was uh, 16 centimeters by 11 mm. centimeters. Yeah. And I was, um, if it wasn't for COVID, I would have been traveling around with my surgeon to prove that um, people can survive <laughs> from that. They don't see it on cadavers. Um, so I'm in and out of the hospital uh, at least once a week for wound care and that sort of thing still. Um, and I have a nurse that comes to the house and all that. So um, when I'm well, my social life will go away. Um, yeah. So I, I still see people and stuff. So it really hasn't changed that much. It's just I, I get cotton swabs down my face often to make sure that I'm still well. Mm. I yearn to be at home just by myself for a few days on some weeks. Yeah. There is a, uh, have you written a book? A couple. Yeah. Is there a theme on resiliency in there somewhere? (laughs) Well, I don't know. It depends on if you consider it nonfiction or fiction. You tell me because it's like, this is not your typical story. See, (laughs) I know. I mean, Somebody said that I, I wasn't telling the truth that my whole life was lies. Um, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't dispel reincarnation, and I think this is just my last time on Earth, so I'm shoving it all in, you know, because I don't have any more trips. Um, but like I said, I, I, I'm really not afraid of anything. I mean, a lot happened to me when I was very young, and I just I gobble up experiences like some people gobble up gumballs. I was outed on the evening news when I was 18. My house was set on fire when I was 20. I've just, I've done everything I possibly could because I've just been thirsty for, for experience. And because of those experiences, people ask me to do this. And I mean, you know, when, when somebody needs something, they ask the busiest person because you can rely on those people. And that, and the fact that I'm a bit of a smart ass and I can do things well, because I only do the things well that I can do, you know, Um, I've just had opportunity, but I've never traveled overseas and Mm -hmm. uh, I've never owned a poodle. And, you know, I mean, there's lots of things I haven't done. Sure. You can't actually do everything. No. no. Like that'd be a li- really long list. Like it's not yeah. actually possible, but you sounds like not just the stuff you've done, but the stuff you've um, just dealt with, I guess. I'm not afraid to though. I mean, yeah. how many people are afraid to go up and talk to homeless people? Right. You know, I'm not. Um, my, my goddaughter had a lot of complications when she was young and she's got health issues. And so I've encouraged her to do every possible thing she can to build, build core strength and to be brave because she's going to be very small when she's an adult. And I, because of, of my contact, she's been in a movie when she was less than a year old. She's ridden a pony before she was four. And I mean, by herself, like a real, real pony, not a Shetland. Um, She's done all these things. And so, I mean, her life sounds fictional because she's done all this stuff, but it's to make her, you know, as confident and as strong and as believing in herself as is possible, you know. So it's just who you know who can bless you and if you're willing to take that chance. So it's just, you know, how brave yeah. you are. Have you been able to see her in the lockdown? Yeah. Yeah. Um, she lives in Lincoln. I live in Omaha. And uh, I'm moving to Seward, which is a town of about Gosh, I think it's about 8,000 people, but oh. it's 20 minutes from her front door to my front door. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and I haven't, I moved here because of medical stuff. They didn't know what I had in Lincoln, specialist 
didn't have a clue. So I moved here three years ago. We figured it out, and now I can do care in anywhere because I know it's wrong. Um, so, so yeah, I moved right. back there so I can be close to her. Yeah. Now, just so people know <laughs> where you are in the world, Omaha, if I'm not mistaken, is the home of the uh, Baseball World Series, College Baseball World Series. Is, are, you, are you aware of that? Yeah, yeah, College World Series. Not this year, but usually. Right. Lincoln yeah. is the home of the University of Nebraska. Uh, the academic portion, yeah. Omaha is uh, UNMC, the University of Nebraska Medical Center, the Mayo Clinic of the Midwest. We're the ones that take care of the Ebola patients and uh, have one of the one of the crisis centers for COVID when COVID first started. The, cr- wow. the people on the cruise ships came here. Yeah, we have we have a really going to say a really sick medical care, but that's the wrong word. Um, SIC, not S-I-C-K. Um, we have a really good um, medical facility. Warren Buffett's Cancer Center is here and just a lot of um, experimentation and stuff. People that get big wounds in the back of their heads, they make medical journals, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool place to be. Omaha and Lincoln both. Um, totally different feels. Omaha is kind of corporate business and really rushed and they have big skyscrapers and Lincoln has a law that nothing can be taller than the state capitol, which is only 13 stories tall. And mm. they have a more crunchy granola. It's easy to be poor there because everybody sings Kumbaya sort of feel. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's very different towns, but very close together. Any other myths? I like the myth combo. The myths? Misunderstandings. Being mentally ill does not make it suicidal. Mm. I'm I'm a transgender individual, and there's the uh, statistic that in the queer community, trans folks are are four times as likely to try and commit suicide than other queer members on the acronym, which is incredibly long. Um, right. And and folks think, well, that's because you're mentally ill. No, that's that's because of so many different obstacles and lack of support and things like that. You don't need to be mentally ill to try and commit suicide. Right. Um, you can be incredibly mentally ill and never think of it. Um, it can be because of pressures. You can have committed a crime and not know how to be in jail. You can have, you know, no solvency monetarily. You can have lost a child, had a divorce. You can, a a small pet have been, you know, died or whatever. You can have being bullied in school, any sort of pressure that you're just not able to handle or don't know how to handle can make you want not to live anymore. I know, I know two schizophrenic, schizophrenic people that are living with schizophrenia. Killing themselves would never occur to them. They, mm-hmm. One of them would, is very offended by the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so mental illness and, and suicide can go hand in hand, but they don't have to. And in fact, I think that suicide can sometimes be an okay option, but you have to be very sane in order to choose that option. Do you think it should be, I don't know the law. I know back in the day it was illegal. Now I don't know if it's a gray area. Do you think that it should be something that people should have the right to absolutely. do? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Not just because you have a disease that's causing you a lot of pain, physical pain, for example, because you simply don't want to be here. You get to decide why. Like, you, like you don't have to justify it to the world. It's yeah. your choice. You think that's... Yeah. If, if you're not mentally ill, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but with a qualification. If you have... Um, if you have a, people are going to want to skewer me for this. If you have a very long history of mental illness, if you have, like I said, dysthymia or um, 
something that it just it gives you so much mental pain and you've lived with that for a very, very, very long time. Um, or if your quality of life is bad and you just don't, you know, whatever. I mean, but there, there shouldn't be any judgment. I don't have any idea what your life is like. But if you can prove that you're of mental competency and that decision is being made, or if there is an advocate for you that is not um, a zealot in some something, you know, that they, they don't want to kick you off for insurance, they don't have a vested interest in keeping you alive or making you dead, then absolutely. Because we own our bodies and we own our lives. And it's it's an unpopular thing to say. It's a scary thing to say because everything is about, you know, everything is about life. But mm. but even pro-life individuals really seem to be more about pro-birth than than pro-life. I mean, once we get born, people really care a lot less than before we're born. And we own ourselves. But yeah. it's it's suicide is the in the time of crisis. When we're making a rash decision because we hurt, we hurt and things seem hopeless. But if they don't seem hopeless, if it's if it's just a thing that's chronic that we we just absolutely can't live with anymore, or it's causing us so much long-term chronic pain, then I think that's a different situation altogether. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, I think I think it should be legal with um, with guidelines. Yeah, with guidelines because. If we have a child that only feels pain, we can terminate that child. If we have a, a spouse that only has certain brain activities and they only, you know, can do that, we can terminate that life. Yeah. So why can't we terminate our own? We that's that's the life that we have the most knowledge about. We don't know for sure that the person on life support can't feel, can't think. You no, know, but we know we can. Yeah. There's something about suicide. We treat it differently than I think yeah. anything else. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's scary. And because terminating our own lives seems really close to to terminating in, in a time of crisis, it, it seems like it's the same thing, but it, it shouldn't be. I, I think it's more than scary. It feels like a lot of people look at it with repugnance. Yeah, it can. It's, it's not just face, scary. It's, it's like yeah. revulsion. Okay, frightened to the nth degree of going yeah, to hell. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know? Um, no one wants to go to hell. And if you, I mean, when my dad was a, a child, he tell, tells about uh, getting in trouble for mowing the lawns around the graves of the people that killed themselves in the Catholic cemetery because the graves weren't to be attended to. Oh, wow. And he, he got in trouble for, for clearing them of weeds because they were, they, they went to hell. I you never know? heard of that before. That's a very old school Catholic. Mm. Yeah. I'm a retrained left-hander. So yeah, old school Catholic. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't, they went straight to hell. So people are, they're, they're revolted for a number of reasons. Many, many different cultures think that folks that did that were, they don't even exist anymore. They don't want to follow. I mean, and their families, they don't, they can't, they can't join them in heaven. You know, it's, it's scary, nasty thing. It's just astounding to me that with all our advances in, some advances in medication, I suppose some advances in other areas of health or mental health, the suicide rate is going up, which is a little bit strange for me. That would be something that you would think, I don't know, would be evening out or going down a little bit, but the data I find, I nose around, right? I want to make myself a little, I understand this stuff as much as I can. It's not going down. I know you may not be an expert at suicide because you have tried, <laughs> I <hope not. laughs> but I do like to ask people 
that the kind of one of the points of the show is that you've tried in my mind, it does kind of make you an expert, at least in your lived experience. Mm-hmm. What is going on? If you can afford the medications, you can take them. Yeah. Right. Um, the population is bigger than it was. Right. So more people are existing in order to do it. Um, folks have to work longer, which make them, their bodies, you know, hurt more. I mean, yeah. folks are, are working until their mid seventies now, or as before my, my grandparents retired when they were in their mid sixties, people are living in more crowded conditions. Um, the world is much more scary because of, um, social media and news coverage. You hardly ever hear anything good on the news anymore. Right. Um, so, so depression, no matter, no matter what you hear, my, my goddaughter, one of the reasons I want to be so close to her is because all she hears is COVID, COVID, COVID. And she is she doesn't understand the correct information. She thinks if you if you wear a mask, you're going to be safe, not mm-hmm. the opposite way around. And and she's terrified. I mean, she she pulls out parts of her her eyelids, eyelashes, and her hair, and she's eight years old. And this sort of depression is is reaching tons of people. Yeah. And and we didn't have that sort of thing. I mean, back in the eighties, you know, okay, Reagan was a little weird, and we had some political stuff, but really weird. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um. But it wasn't it wasn't as bad. It's become bad exponentially because yeah. of technology and the same technology that's giving us better health is also making us more depressed and more scared and bringing the world closer together. And all those problems are they're just they're huge. We feel hopeless yeah. now and, and joyful, but we feel hopeless also. And add to that, you know, what you had said earlier about the way we engage with people who are not doing well, mm-hmm. pain, despair, distress. I can't imagine that helps very much either. No. In that we don't do it, don't know how to do it, whatever. Like, yeah. It's a lot of stuff. It is. I'm learning a lot about my friends with the, with the Black Lives Matter thing and the COVID thing. I mean, it's teaching me a lot about people yeah. that I had thought different things about before. A lot of folks think that they know and they don't and vice versa. Would be well served to... Um, meet more folks and, and listen a lot, you know, instead of speak a lot. Amen. You think you're going to try again? Right now, I would say no. If I get to a quality of life where, um, where my quality of life is very bad, I would hope that I have, I have, a, I have a living will in place and I have all that stuff in place and it's, it's pretty well, I'm pretty well fortified for not living right. a, a life that I don't want to. But right now with my, with my um, acronymed mental health um, pretty well maintained, I think that I don't think I will um, because I know what my issues are. And I know, I told somebody just the other day, uh, underneath all of my emotions and um, hard times, sometimes underneath all that, I relax and I rest in the fact that it's mental illness causing these feelings. It's not reality. So when I'm freaking out, I feel really depressed. I can take a breath and take a fraction of a second to know that this is this is not reality. This is just me manifesting the the stuff that that happens, and then you know, in a, in an hour or two or whatever, or next next day or next week, it's going to be okay. And then my dog will jump up and lick my face. <laughs> Did you ever get a diagnosis that you felt was accurate? Yeah, yeah. What what is it? Um, well, first there's there's PTSD. I was assaulted in uh, 2014. And I was filling out a PTSD sheet um, after the assault. And I, I asked the counselor, what do you do if all of these things are already true? Um, so that was one of them. Yeah. And um, 
Then there was uh, clinical depression and um, well-integrated DID. What's that? Um, DID is what they used to call multiple personality disorder. It's, it's very common in, in kids that are severely abused or spouses that are severely abused. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way, of, way for you to go somewhere else when, when you're yeah. being hurt so that you don't have to experience it. Luckily, mine was, was well integrated. So my, my, the personalities I took on or, or whatever, um, they weren't separate individuals. They were just different kind of moods, different kinds of phasing out. I, I, lose, I lose time sometimes, and I used to lose time then. But folks, they thought that I was just um, a colorful personality that would switch, you know, right, right. I strong maybe. Um, but now I understand what it is, and I, I tell people that I'm close to about it. Um, and I guess the public at large now, but I tell people that I'm close to about it. And I, I've written about it. It's in some, some poetry that I've written and stuff. You know, it's, it's odd because I can write a poem about anything and, and perform it, whatever. But telling somebody close to me is more difficult for some reason. And um, does medication help? Yeah. yeah. It does. Yeah. I know some people struggle to ever find medication that works or helps. And others seem to... Yeah, find something, right? Or things. Yeah, it's it's a struggle. Um, there's something called pharmacogenics. If you if somebody says that word to their doctor, they'll know what it is. But okay. pharmaco something genics is it's a study where chemicals um, will be tested on you to determine if those chemicals actually work on you or not. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, I wish I could say it correctly, um, but it's it's rather new and um, it, it will save you a lot of time in finding the right medication. Oh my God. Yeah. Like that's an example of what I'm talking about. We're getting better at stuff like that. Yeah. But you'd think that might have a direct. Yeah. Like, well, you got to afford it. You have to have insurance. There's other yeah. obstacles. Maybe in 20 years, it'll be, look different. Yeah. Medicaid and Medicare do cover it. Yeah. Um, good. But it's, it's a GI thing. Um, but yeah, it's pharmaco, pharmacogenics or something. But genics is at the end and pharmaco is in the beginning. Okay. So fill in the middle and, and right. they'll be able to help. <laughs> Google should be able to help you with that if you want to check yeah. it. Yeah, I would think. I have two two more questions and then I'll shut up and let you share anything else because I always say I don't assume I ask the best questions, the right questions. <laughs> the reality is I could talk about this stuff for a while, you know. Yeah. If there's a kid out there who is experiencing the world in any way similar to the way you were, right? Mm-hmm. I know that there's very little you can actually do, really. I mean, you can't, you're not going to fly over there. Like you're in your room in Nebraska. But yeah. do you think if they hear this, like what do you think you might be able to say to them? Should they hear this? Like, are there any words that might bring them some comfort or give them something they might need? I have a practical piece of advice and an emotional piece of advice. Um, the emotional piece of advice is just because people tell you that you're supposed to love whomever is talking to you doesn't mean they're going to treat you nicely. It took me a long time to understand that my father was screwed up by his father. Mm-hmm. And even though he was screwed up by his father, it didn't make it right. Mm-hmm. He was a grown up, and he had choices to make and he made the wrong ones because he chose to. Mm-hmm. Um, he might, might've loved me. I don't know. Um, we haven't talked in over 20 years. Um, but he chose to make the wrong choice in how he treated me. And just because he was my dad doesn't mean that I needed to love him back. I could if I, if I chose to, but I also could not love him and I could leave. 
I could mm-hmm. find a teacher, a fireman, anybody. And that's okay. If you're being hurt, if your body's being hurt or your mind's being hurt, or if they're having sex with you or, or whatever, if you're feeling bad because of the person that's supposed to love you for telling you bad things about yourself, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And, and you can leave. And social services is so gosh darn busy right now that if you're not, if you're not bruised, if you have food in your house, if you have good clothes, they're probably not going to help you. So if they don't help you go to a youth shelter, even if there's not one in your town, go to one where there is, but, but get away. I mean, and that's not, that's not recommended advice. Right. Um, But if it's, if it's that or your life, get away. I mean, just go away because not every parent, not every caretaker loves a child like they should. Not every teacher loves a child like they should. And it's because they were screwed up, but they're still adults and they still should choose the right thing. They just don't. Hmm. So, so don't trust social services all the time. Don't trust your parents all the time. Don't be an asshole and use that as an excuse because you got grounded because you used your phone after 10 o'clock at night. But if you're really hurting and you yeah. really think, you know, that you're not going to live because they don't, they don't care for you. If that's, if that's the truth, then get out. Mm-hmm. Um, save your life and figure out the details later. That, that would be my, my emotional advice. My tangible advice is to have a go bag ready all the time because if Wait, you what's have a, to, what do you mean a go bag? A like, go bag is take off. Yeah. If you have to run away or if something happens, if you get in a fight with someone at home um, because of the advice that I, I just said, you need to have a bag packed and ready to leave and not held in the house. It needs to be, in a plastic bag buried under a rock or something or at a friend's house or something like that with um, a little bit of money and proof of who you are, some extra shoes, extra clothes, a few snacks, that sort of thing. So that if you do have to leave, you can make it for a day or two and and always have that ready. If you think there's going to be an emergency, because oftentimes if you have a fight with your folks or something, they're going to shove you out the door and close, close the door, you know, and then what are you going to do? And -hmm. if your go bag is in the house, you're screwed. And that's not just for, for kids with suicide in, thoughts of suicide. That's for kids that are, that are queer or trans or whatever, and they want to come out and they maybe get thrown out. But keep your mind and body safe, no matter who is putting it at threat, and then make sure that you can keep your mind and body safe for a day or two. So that's, that's my bit of advice to kids. But just because you're in a traditional relationship with an adult doesn't mean that they're going to love you traditionally. Right. And the other part of the question would be to the people in their lives, the good ones, mm-hmm. not the abusers. <laughs> yeah. No, really. I mean, the ones that want to help, yeah. want to support, they're dealing with a child or a sister or maybe a coworker who's really not doing well mm-hmm. from somebody who you've been on that both sides for a while, <laughs> sounds like. Do you, anything for them that might be helpful or useful for them to understand? Or embrace? Ask them if they have a plan. Mm. Ask them if they have a plan. Ask them if they're going to kill themselves and if they have a plan. Don't be afraid of the word suicide. Um, don't be afraid to ask them if they thought about how they're going to do it. Invite them over. Um, even if they say it every single day, twice a day, let them know that you're, you're hearing them and you're going to sit with them. Or you're going to have somebody else sit with them. Or um, do they need a ride to the hospital? Mm-hmm. If they threaten to hurt themselves or somebody else, they'll be held for 72 hours. Maybe that's enough time to get them to feel better. Um, it's difficult to commit someone without 
more than one individual being involved. But a 72-hour hold sometimes makes a world of difference. Mm-hmm. But just not to be afraid to talk about it directly and not, not to be afraid to keep, not keep it a secret. I mean, tell someone, tell a relative, tell their spouse, whatever. But most importantly, just talk about it and ask if they have a plan. Get them to talk about how they might might do it because if they're going to shoot themselves, look for a gun. I mean, right. look for ammunition. If they're going to cut themselves, get rid of the knives, lock them up. I mean, childproof the house as if they were a toddler. I mm-hmm. mean, that's and then keep an eye on them for a while. But but find out and then see if you can help. Yeah. Hmm. What else? <laughs> that's a that's a big question right what 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 else you got no i just i always like i have questions but i'm like i don't you know i'm I'm learning this as i go i'm like i i could have asked that so i just sort of throw it back on you that's all right i just i think that if we if we started in the beginning in the first place we wouldn't have the ending problems you know i mean if we talked to our neighbors or at least waved if we felt more of a connection we wouldn't feel so alone i mean that's such a simple answer but it's such a simple answer you know i mean i asked my my housemate if he knew his neighbors now he hadn't talked to him yeah um i've only lived here for a year and a half and i know more about my neighbor than he has living here for almost 20 Mm -hmm. um and and i realize i talk a lot but it's it's difficult for me too he does this um myers-briggs stuff all the Mm -hmm. time to a point where it's kind of nauseating Mm -hmm. but to um to make him happy, I did the test too, and I am an INFP, I guess, which is like super rare and super closed up right. and introverted and stuff. But I, I'll go. I mean, nobody's a stranger in my life. Yeah. Um, and I wish more people could do that because if you could not make friends, but just, just look somebody in the eye, you know, yeah. and it's yeah, or at somebody's shoulder because a lot of people can't do eye contact, you know. I have a young friend living with autism and I said, okay, let's both look at that dashboard. Now talk to me. Um, because if we have this, this point of connection, even if it's not at each other, then, you know, we can, we can bond some way. And yeah. a lot of times people are, are suicidal because they feel so alone. They just need some sort of connection. I never want to generalize, but that what you just said really resonates. I mean, if have to think that's the main thing really when you boil it down is that feeling of being alone? Yeah, I mean, there's there's precipitators for it. I mean, maybe yeah. I'm committing suicide because I'm broke, but if I had somebody that just to, to be with and hold my hand through it or, you know, yeah. or talk about it, whatever the issue. Sure, sure. And if you're rich, you might be able to insulate yourself in a way that someone who's poor can't. You're going to go get a massage more often and you can go, you know, there's ways it doesn't mean you're not miserable and you won't try to end your life, but sometimes- right. they- cushion that you right. don't have when you're impoverished right um yeah i think those are some wonderful points and i think that there are people who will hear it and be better for it from what you shared so i really do appreciate it i appreciate the opportunity <laughs> i always ask people like i'm always a little bit curious about their day-to-day life like what's one thing today or tomorrow that you do that's super joyful I am working on this this uh, line of art called I'm Not Your Medusa. I, I, I make art and I donate it to charities. And I realize that because they're charities, I get inflated prices for them. Not that I get the money the charities do. But, um, right, right. No, no, I, that's cool. 
Yeah. Um, but I, I averaged, I don't know, three or $400 a drawing. And um, wow. so the first one was this Medusa that she wasn't supposed to be, but somebody called her one. And I said, no, she's not your Medusa. And that, that just led to a string of things. Um, I have one for Trump and every weird little lock of hair had something that he said that was vile in it. Um, How many locks of hair are there? I'll send you a copy of it. It's, it's a lot of hair. <laughs> I, there needs to be a lot of effing hair. <laughs> it was a lot of hair. Um, I didn't even know he said some of the stuff he said. And I, oh, it was, yeah. Um, and that was a private commission. But, but uh, so I do that and I'm working on one of those right now. Um, and I'm also moving. And it's been my, the first place that I've lived in by myself for two and a half years because my world blew up. And, Your world blew um, up. So, yeah. Um, a guy that, that I uh, called my brother for 10 years or so, uh, I, I ministered in the same church that he did, um, under, under him and found out long story short that he was not even ordained, but he embezzled from the church and did a whole bunch of nasty things and left mm -hmm. couples at the altar and stuff like that. And, um, that was the main thing that you're referring to when your world blew up. Yeah. Wow. I, and people, people around me and I brought him to task and, and, um, exposed for exposed him for what was he, he was a, was he just a flat-out liar he we're pretty certain that if he were diagnosed he would have narcissistic personality disorder yeah something is, it's a mental illness so i mean in my heart i love him um but the things that his illness caused him to do hurt a lot of people yeah. um and he's incredibly magnanimous and he moved out of state and where he is now he's got the same following uh, you've, you've yeah. heard that story in some way other times yeah yeah um with the last mess that he made just got exposed and resolved four months ago and i cleaned it up you know oh you did wow yeah because at the church we were considered to be you know business partners and stuff so people people kept saying it's not your responsibility but some of them if i had acted like they told me to i, I would have been legally responsible so each mess that i find out about or they contact me about i have to to look at so it caused me to be homeless and um i was accused of some things that were his way of retaliation and things like that. And it's just been hard. I feel, I feel very battered by this community right now. Uh -huh. um, so I'm packing to move anyway. I've been staying with a friend. I floated around for a while cause I didn't have any, any resources, but I've been staying with my mm -hmm. friend for a year and a half. So now I'm, I'm going to move into my own place in, in two and a half weeks. So I've been packing awesome. all of my stuff and, and, and drawing reduces. <laughs> Right. And drawing, if yeah. God or the universe or whatever anyone happens to believe in, your life was not meant to be easy. No, no. It just because no. I said this to one other guest once, but you're the only other one where I think to myself, if it was supposed to be easy, someone made a huge mistake <laughs> because it, well, it's just, you have had your challenges. And I, and I say this without being truly like trite, about it or i don't even know what the hell the right word is like it's astounding it's like wow man you are here yeah but i've been really blessed i mean my my seizure disorder um has led me to meet some really incredible people mm -hmm. i i wouldn't i wouldn't give it up in a heartbeat i've been so yeah. blessed and as as a performance poet i've written some things people told me not to perform and then at yeah. the end of those performances people have come to me and said i thought i was crazy until i heard you yeah, and usually people, when people say don't to perform it, those are probably the ones you need to perform. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. And live through this. I've gotten emails from time to time and said, you saved my life. And yeah. I feel so freaking humbled by that. 
wouldn't have given that up. It was hard and I wouldn't want to relive it on purpose, but I wouldn't give it up. Well, thanks again, C. You're welcome. And you have a great name. (laughs) And keep in touch. You're a cool human too. I like you. Oh, thanks, C. I feel the same way about you. And um, I'll look forward to that link and I'll talk to you soon. And uh, until then, I hope your your days days are great. Yeah, good. You too. Stay well. All right, Sue. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. As always, thanks so much for listening. And special thanks to C in Nebraska. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Suicide Noted. We also have a YouTube channel, so if video's your thing, you can check that out. Again, if you're a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, you can email us at hello at suicidenoted.com. Until we connect again, stay strong. Do the very best you can. I'll talk to you soon.